Welcome back to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm Nathan, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Darren, ExoAcadamia. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Welcome to 2023. Darren, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, I have no doubt it's going to be an exciting year. In some ways, you know, I reflect and I think, 2023, that sounds so futuristic. I can't believe that's actually when we are, but it is indeed. I'm going to really date myself here because uh, I remember the skit when, when Conan O'Brien would do the in the year 2000 and uh, the, making that seem like it was super futuristic. So, oh my gosh, we're 23 years after that. It's uh, I got the gray hairs to prove it. Yeah, you've got Prince partying like it's 1999 and then we're like decades beyond that. So what are you going to say? It is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, well, here we are in liminal frames where time often has no real meaning. Uh, so I'll take consolation, solace in that. And uh, we thought it might be good, uh, listeners, to start our year going back to some of the basics. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time throwing out words and concepts uh, that are familiar to us. We've talked about, Darren and I talked about these things quite a bit, uh, not only on the show, but in our personal conversation. And you hear a lot of these terms tossed around within the community as well. And I think it would be valuable if we spent some time digging into them more deeply, unpacking what we mean when we, when we say that we use those terms, uh, and then trying to, as best we can, kind of build up from the bottom layer uh, and, and expand on the the way in which we look at the phenomena, you know, how it kind of makes sense from a a total perspective. So Darren, uh, I don't know what you think about that approach, but uh, I'm excited about doing it. We, we've been talking about doing something like, like this for a while. This feels like a good start. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you, you had this idea and I, I'm all for it because I think this has become pretty central for us. Uh, it's commonsensical to us, but I think for a lot of people it's not. And as we were talking about just a few minutes ago before we went on the air, you know, everything around them is telling them something else, like our, our conventional notions in society of what reality is um, and how we try to force the UFO phenomenon and paranormality into that is telling people one thing. So here we are suggesting notions that are very, very different. So on the one hand, um, it might sound interesting to people, but it goes against everything they're used to hearing. And because we're conditioned uh, beings, it also goes against the intuitions that have been developed over a lifetime. So it's worth, uh, you know, drilling down um, and really spending some time building these notions out one by one. Absolutely. And we spend a lot of time talking about frameworks. Uh, you just touched on some of that. Frameworks in which we look at the world, we're born into them, uh, we've, we've inherited them. And uh, there are multiple frameworks of looking at the world that exist in human history. And uh, some of them have had their uh, sort of day uh, on stage, and some of them uh, have not had quite as big of a sort of a prominent role, at least in, in the Western world. Um, I would say there, you know, remind everybody, there are lots of different civilizations and lot, lots of different viewpoints. Um, and so we're in the West, and in the West, we're steeped in materialism. This is the, the air we breathe, and it's been firmly established that that's the way to look at reality. Uh, for a few hundred years now. Uh, so it's it's had a lot of time to uh, gain a strong footing and, and to be reinforced via all of the different things that we depend on in our day-to-day life. It's just, it's in the fabric of our, of our experience. Uh, but it's not the only way to look at reality. 
there are other ways to to think about it uh, beyond just that material uh, perspective. Um, and so the main way that we you know, to talk about quite frequently is from the perspective perspective of consciousness and uh, the role that consciousness plays in reality itself. So I think we might want to start there. We use the big C word a lot. Uh, wh- what are we talking about when we use the word consciousness? What what does it mean for you, Darren? Well, before I quickly jump into that, let me just quickly also back up a step and say that I think part of the the bias and the prejudice, the hubris that exists in our contemporary society around materialism uh, is because it's been so transformatively powerful, right? Because um, we, well, like while you said, there are different civilizations around the world that see reality differently, but we think ours is the best one because it's been so transformative, you know, like tripling lifespans over the last hundred years or so, you know, 200 years. Um, you know, we're taking trips to the moon and beyond, you know, we're, we're planning uh, trips to Mars and colonies on Mars and that kind of thing. So when people see that, they go, well, it's been so powerful and so transformative and so efficacious. Doesn't that mean that everything about it is right, right? So the, the, the sort of like A equals B. And what we're saying is that's not true. And as I've mentioned this many times on this show, that um, we've learned to model nature to a, an amazing degree. And that has allowed us to have predictive power that's allowed us to create technologies that have transformed many aspects of our lives. But that's, again, just modeling nature. It doesn't tell us what nature is. I've said this so many times, but I really want people to drill down on that because that's that's where this begins is what is the underlying fabric of reality? You can know that something's going to happen, right? You can see a cold front coming and realize you should put a jacket on. <clears throat> that doesn't mean you necessarily understand every elemental mechanical aspect behind what causes that ultimately, right? That's that's a big difference. So that's what we, one thing we want to sort of stress here. Um, but when we speak of consciousness, we can go back and forth in this because this, I think we should take some time to sort of drill down on this. But the first thing I would say is that for any one of us, the one thing we're sure of is that we're having a conscious experience. <clears throat> for me to ask that question presupposes that I'm having a conscious experience or I couldn't ask that question in which I'm questioning my conscious experience. So it's kind of built in that it's the one thing we can be sure of that um, none of this would be happening if it weren't for the fact that we were having an awareness around some sort of experience, something we're conscious of, aware of, right? And in that transformative power with technology that we talked about, along that process came this assumption that there's a material world, right? And that this material world is outside of our consciousness, right? It even goes further and says, our consciousness is a product of that material world and therefore has no sustaining power, has no enduring uh, capacity beyond the material, you know, construction of it. So when our bodies dissolve, there's nothing left to us is, is the idea in materialism. But what people need to realize, and this is the first step in understanding why um, materialism is really a leap in logic that's not supported, is that when we posit the notion of a material world outside of consciousness, that is an untestable hypothesis at that point. Because again, as we've talked about before, 
just because I knock on a desk and it makes a sound and I can feel it supposedly, you know, on my knuckles, doesn't mean it actually exists any more than if I were to do that in a dream last night, you would think I was silly if I said to you, so I know this desk existed somewhere. Did it, or was it just a manifestation of consciousness, right? It was the way that my dreamscape kind of came together. And there's consistency within that dreamscape, right? You knock on a, what looks like a desk and it gives you the feedback telling you it's a desk, right? So it's, it's internally consistent. But really, when you think about it, our waking experience right now, if I knock my knuckles on this desk, I have no way of knowing that's any more quote unquote real than the dream I had last night when I was knocking on a desk. So that's the first thing to, to uh, say here, and then I'll toss it back to you, is that the one thing we're sure of is that we're having conscious experience. The notion of a material world outside of that is not only unproven, but really untestable. So you realize that really you can have everything we have and, and it only be about consciousness, that all of these different things, desks, Nathan, Darren, the walls, the computers we're talking through, everything is actually just excitation of consciousness, right? That's all it ultimately is. And just because it takes different forms in different times doesn't mean that those are actually substantive ultimately. They are temporary forms, just like you have uh, temporary forms in a dream. But then when you wake up, they're gone, right? So that's the notion with consciousness being primary, being fundamental, is that Anything that looks like a physical world ultimately is just an excitation of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. I, I also really like the description that uh, Bernardo Castrop uses the uh, the notion of the dashboard. So I think that that's really helpful. Helped me understand this concept very well. So just to reiterate what that is, uh, he uses this notion that a pilot, an airplane pilot, can fly the airplane by just looking at the instrument panel. Don't have to have the the windows, have to see outside of the airplane to be able to fly that airplane successfully. You can literally just fly it by looking at what's happening on the dashboard in front of you. And he's saying that that's exactly what our experience of the world is, is just a dashboard of dials and levers. It's a representation of something else, which is happening outside of that perceptive experience that we don't have a direct experience of. Uh, we can do a great deal. We can fly that airplane. We can navigate our lives by looking at that dashboard. But we can also confuse the dashboard for reality itself. And I like that concept. Not only is it just, for me, easy just to kind of grab onto, um, but also it, I feel that it uh, it connects very well with what we know about our own you know, sort of cognitive uh, experience or our perceptual experience. We know that what, what we think of as reality is already reduced by, uh, it's already gone through a series of reductions by the time it's arisen in our conscious awareness. So, uh, you know, color and, and light and, and texture and taste and all of these sound, all of these things are things that are happening uh, in, in, in a, a spectrum that we only get a very narrow experience of. Um, and so, it, you know, these concepts to me really blend very nicely uh, to, to, together. Um, and, and I would argue too that, or at least point out that um, even if we have all this testable uh, science where we can say, hey, I, I ran this experiment and it happened in a vacuum tube and we, you know, we pull all this data out of it and it 
show that there are these things that are there. Well, the evaluation of any of that content is still happening in human awareness, happening in human perception. So it, it, you cannot, as you said, you cannot disentangle our conscious awareness from everything that we're observing. Like there's no independent uh, objective uh, thing that is happening outside of our awareness and our perception. Right. And I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, um, the metaphor of the dashboard of dials, because uh, just to reiterate that a bit again, um, when Bernardo talks about that, he'll talk about our everyday intuitions and how we are fooled by them, right? So his point is that not only can you fly the plane while you're also looking out the window, but technically if it's extremely stormy and basically a, a blackout outside, you can't see anything, you can take off, fly across the country or across the world and land the plane without ever actually seeing what's actually going on outside because you trust that those dials are giving you accurate information about what's actually going on in reality. Now, the key there is though that, of course, the outside weather and air pressure and those kind of things and you know how high you are off the ground, altitude, none of that actually is perfectly represented one-to-one -one with these dials on the dashboard. <clears throat> they somehow reference something, right? Um, they give you the information you need to get from A to B. His point there, and this fits in with Donald Hoffman's work, right, around um, evolution and what it, it has done, that basically the process of evolution has given us that dashboard of dials, right? And it does in some way reference some reality that, like, as you said, we never directly access or directly perceive, right? But because it allows us to get through the world in the same way that those dashboard of dials allow you to fly the plane, we've assumed that that is reality, that what we perceive through our six senses is giving us real information about the world out there. And Hoffman's point, and it fits very much with Bernardo's point, is that um, that's just not true. That um, not only, uh, so the conventional wisdom is that, okay, sure, like you said, there's some like parts of the spectrum that we're not perceiving, right? Um, the ultraviolet spectrum, we can perceive directly, things like that. But the, the parts that we are perceiving, at least that's part of the real thing, right? And Bernardo's point and Donald Hoffman has said there's, you know, mathematical theorems that prove this, that actually the, the amount of correlation between actual reality and what we perceive as reality is precisely zero. In other words, what we perceive is nothing like the real reality. Um, and you can run game theory to, to come up to those conclusions. Um, where again, as we've talked about before, human beings that are around today uh, have ancestors who learned shortcuts, who developed perceptual shortcuts that allowed them to stay alive. And that's all it is. The same way that if you're playing a video game, you're not actually dealing with the transistors, the voltages, the zeros and ones in the computer software. You're playing with avatars and icons, right? That move from level to level, screen to screen. That has nothing to do with the underlying reality of the computer. Uh, and the software, but it allows you to still navigate in a way that changes that. So that's really what we are perceiving in reality. Um, so it really is important to hit home that it's not just about us perceiving a portion, a narrow sort of band of reality, but actually what we've developed is a completely different interface that is not directly related to reality, but only allows us to interface with that reality in a way we don't see how it's happening. It just works because we've learned the shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then what, uh, 
I think that's a really good explanation. But what can we then say, uh, I guess, with conviction about what reality actually is? I mean, I, I think we can at least say, we can at, at root say that it, as you said earlier, it's a, it's the excitation of consciousness. But but if our if our correlation is kind of uh, murky, fuzzy, uh, not particularly uh, uh, high fidelity, you know, how can we make any sort of uh, statements about what reality might be like or how it might behave? Uh, how, do, how do we get there from, from here? So I'd say that the, what we would say here is that um, when you think about a dream, you think about a dreamer, right? Mm. And so if we're saying that um, when we talk about consciousness, what we're basically, and we're talking about conscious experience and, and mentation processes, right? What we're basically saying is that uh, the notion with something like analytic idealism, which is Bernardo's model, um, and we can talk tonight about how that's sort of the Western way of uh, approaching this, right? Idealism. But then it fits very much with Eastern Vedantic non-duality and kind of things. We can talk about how those connect. But the notion is that you have, um, you might want to call it God. You might want to call it the cosmic intelligence, whatever feels better to you. Uh, but some sort of conscious intelligence, right, presupposes everything. And that all of the experiences that, that happen, everything that manifests is basically a dream or a thought or a mindscape created by this original intelligence. And so everything is basically mentation. So, so when I, I mean it quite literally when I say that you and I talking right now is no different than the dream I had last night. I mean that very, very literally, actually, that it's fundamentally the same process that, um, again, embedded within it as characters within the dream we experience it as this physical thing, right? But ultimately, it's no different than the dream. So what we can say is that we have all of the phenomenological aspects of everything around us, whether it's in a dream or in the waking state now, uh, is ultimately just fields of mentation of that original consciousness having thoughts, having dreams, and but ultimately those are inseparable, that this is just the activity of the dreamer, right? So that's what we can say about this. It can take different forms. You can have a dream where you're in Hawaii one time, the next thing you know, you're in this really kind of weird Twin Peaks kind of zone. You're not sure what's going on. Um, which one is real, which one's not? That's kind of an incoherent question within that kind of framework, right? That these are just mentation processes, dreams that uh, arise, which ult ultimately are just excitations of consciousness, which kind of presupposes this kind of intelligence in which this consciousness is seated, right? So, and, and I think it's really important to point out here, this is why this is actually more parsimonious than the material model, because it's saying that all you have is consciousness and excitation of consciousness, which ultimately is the same thing, right? So to use another really powerful metaphor, you know, we have this notion of a whirlpool, right? So you can have a whirlpool in a river and for all intents and purposes, it really seems like it's an individual thing, right? It's got a certain structure to it that's consistent. Uh, it, it could even, you could say, have its own identity. You know, I'm always this water that goes around in the circle here and I have a sense of being separate and individual. When we know in the big picture, ultimately all that is, is a particular excitation of water. It's really 
no different than the river. At, at, when you sort of zoom out, you go, the whirlpool and the river are one thing, right? Um, and I think if we, even one thing that science has helped us to do in the our ability to macroscopically and microscopically zoom in and out of reality or what we think of as reality, we start recognizing that these distinctions we make between what is a tree versus what is the earth versus what is the air, you know, like, or how am I different than the bacteria in my gut? We start recognizing that some of these are just arbitrary lines we draw that really have no foundational reality to them, right? It's just a way we choose to perceive things conveniently. So that's something to think about when we think about, you know, consciousness being being foundational. Um, I like the idea too about this uh, concept of, of intelligence because uh, our conscious experience isn't an experience of, of disorder and, and total chaos. There is form, structure, order, uh, delineation. Like otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have anything that we could articulate at all. It would be a, just a, a kind of an experiential soup uh, where there isn't any sort of thing that we could conclude or uh, or predict or anything of that nature. So because we have uh, these distinct experiences of different forms and objects like there is an underlying structure to conscious experience uh it may not be uh 100% correlative it may not be that uh there literally is a table as you said earlier um but there is something structured like that in you know taking place in, in conscious awareness um you know so i, I guess where I want to go from here is because uh, this comes up quite often for folks who I think have some critiques of this perspective is that, uh, you know, they often kind of say, so, so are you saying that, you know, if I just want to think about the world differently that I can literally just, you know, sort of change however it happens to be. Like if I just want to, uh, you know, turn this, uh, you know, desk into a yacht, can I just think that it's a yacht and then I can go sailing? I mean, how does it, how does it work? Is it, why, why doesn't it work like that? Well, let's just try it. We're going to go ahead right now, Nathan, try to turn that desk into a yacht. Concentrating so hard. Yes. I'm not seeing the yacht. I guess it didn't work. <laughs> right. I mean, that that's, that's a good question. And I think you're right that that's one of the first things people hear when they first hear about this model, right? They, they say, oh, so you're saying this is sort of mind over matter to the nth degree that you know, if I decide I want my, you know, room to be a different color, I just need to perceive it that way and then it will be. And we're saying, no, that's not what we're saying. So this is where idealism is different than solipsism, right? So in solipsism, basically everything is just your consciousness, your own individual consciousness. You you are all that really is. And in that sense, you would have 100% control over everything that manifests, right? But what we're saying here is that we talked about that initial cosmic intelligence, right? That um, gave birth to or th gave thought to um, everything that now phenomenologically exists, right? Including us. So what we are is like characters in that mindscape, right? So the intelligence that populated this mindscape, this dream space, is that is some iteration of a cosmic intelligence, right? We can get to in a little while about how we can think about these as disassociated alters, like different personas in consciousness that like that whirlpool for a period of time, take on the semblance of individuality, right? And personhood, right? 
think about the the whirlpool again. Um, but but we are just whirlpools, right? In the river, which is in SA, maybe like in a jungle zone or something. So all all we in this dream have access to in terms of changing is maybe some of what's going on within the whirlpool. But because the entire dreamscape exists in the mind, mind at large is what Bernardo Castro would call it, right? The 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 mind of the cosmic intelligence. Um, that's what seeds this dreamscape. So we do have some ability to change some things. And I think the more we develop our consciousness, the more we do have the, an ability to change that actually. And that's one of the interesting things with some of these others, these non-human intelligences, is they've developed a much greater skill to be able to basically have a mind over matter kind of uh, situation where, you know, it's not that they need to come through the front door. They can just like make the entire wall of your house seemingly dematerialize, right? Even when we hear that term, right? You hear the, the physicalist kind of um, hubris there, right? The assumption that that is something that has to dematerialize for you to come in. And we're saying, no, it's a thought form. And so they basically can deal on the level of the thought form. They don't want that wall to be there. It's not there. It's that simple. So, so on the one hand, we can develop more ability to um, change the, the environment around us. But that takes some skill. And we have to remember that ultimately, though, there's these different interacting consciousnesses who have different levels of ability to change these things. But ultimately, the original seeding of this dreamscape was by some outer intelligence, might not be the original one, because there can be multiple iterations, which we can talk about that, right? And how that works in terms of dimensions, uh, other things I've talked about. But that gives you some idea of the difference between idealism and solipsism. In idealism, we are like characters within mind at large, and mind at large is what ultimately and originally populates this dreamscape, of which we actually are just, again, excitations of that consciousness, the same way that a whirlpool is an excitation of the river. Mm -hmm. oh, well, you've touched on a couple of things that I, I definitely wanted to get into and that you hinted that we should. Uh, so one is is the notion of the core conscious intelligence, and you know we can use the word God, and that I know that word has a lot of baggage, uh, but you know the 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 mind at large, capital M, right? Um, you know, so why would mind at large in its resting state, if I can use that phrase, like why would it disassociate at all? Why not just stay at rest uh, as one conscious experience? Right, and I think this is where uh, we kind of have this bridge across to um, some Eastern traditions in terms of their understanding of reality, because the notion there is that, um, think about this even with a human being, right? And and I understand when people say, well, you can't just like reduce this to the way human beings exist, but just follow this as a meta metaphor for a second. When we, we are a social species, right? And any one of us that went and lived completely by ourselves and had no interaction with another human being, eventually... We might go a little bit insane, but it would certainly be a bit boring because all we would ever have is our own impressions, interpretations, and it would get very static and, and, and stale. And so the notion is that with the original conscious intelligence, the cosmic intelligence, the only way that you could actually have novel experience, right, that wasn't just the same old, same old, would be to 
effectively disassociate and for a period of time anyway, forget what you ultimately are, right? The same way that the whirlpool, we think about a whirlpool as having consciousness, just use that metaphor. It for a while forgets that it's the river, right? And so it takes on new experience because you've changed the the parameters of perceived existence. And when you change the parameters of perceived existence, you create novel experience because experience is a combination of the being and the environment, right? And the interaction between the two. So by creating a new iteration of a conscious being, even if it's ultimately illusory and temporary, you're able to have novel experience, which you can then, in the way that the whirlpool eventually dissolves back into the river, the river absorbs that 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 memory, that understanding, that experience, and now the totality has access to new information. So it's almost like this trick that happens that allows new information to happen because of this temporary forgetting and this disassociation uh, from the original consciousness intelligence into a second one. And that's how you begin to have this process um, of this ongoing situation where you you just keep scaling that out, right? Um, that, that we're not suggesting it's just, well, I'm not suggesting it's just one cosmic intelligence, then a bunch of human beings. I'm saying that all of these beings that we we hear about the myriad different beings that we hear about in the UFO phenomenon um, are also disassociated alters of that original intelligence. And that's partly why I have spoken with some confidence around the sense that they're ultimately on the same journey that we are, because ultimately we are the same thing. At root, we are iterations, instantiations of this one cosmic intelligence, which ultimately returns to source. So the same lessons apply, even if we're at different points along the spectrum. That's exactly where I wanted to go next, and that's this, uh, why posit non-human uh, conscious agents uh, outside of just uh, the human ones? And I, I mean, first of all, uh, take, take aliens or the others out of the equation. We already have non-human intelligence on this planet, <laughs> just as a reminder, everybody. You know, we have insects, we have animals, we have cellular life. Uh, there's all of these different things that that are that we call life, which exist, uh, you know, coexist in our in our current commonly accepted experience of being well, what it means to be human. Um, so we don't have to take a huge leap to say that that if we're gonna go with different differentiated conscious experience, that it, that it takes on many different kinds of of forms. Uh, but to then go to the next level and say that well there are uh, there are other beings that are you know maybe humanoid or human like in their and their level of consciousness or greater level of consciousness you know why why do we need to go there and and before I, w I want you to talk about that before you do I also want to point out that we have traditions that talk about this already as well so our human history is full of uh, mythologies and, and conceptions of other intelligent agents that are not human, that interact with the human sort of plane of experience. Uh, and and to, to many ancients, that there would have been no separation between these worlds. The, these worlds were the one world, essentially, uh, that, that all of these different kinds of beings interacted uh, together in. Um, but it's just until recently uh, that we, you know, we we kind of kicked those other beings out of the picture and said, well, no, no, only what's happening is in, you know, on on Earth and what we can test in a laboratory, and that other stuff is happens in the in the world of the imagination. Um, 
and then enter into the, the, the 20th century and where we are now, so many experiences uh, related to uh, you know other entities seemingly from other planets or other dimensions or alternate realities. Uh, we're having experiences, people telling us that they've had experiences of these. And so that then forces us to, to revisit that question. Do we jettison those things or, or, or continue to bucket them into the category of imagined experience? Or can we pull them into experience itself, into reality itself? And, and if we do so, how do they fit in that larger unified pic picture? So I wonder if you could talk to that. Right. So I would say one thing about that is that in the same way, again, using the analogy of the whirlpool again, because that temporary manifestation of the water is so convincing, right? It, I mean, if you've ever seen a whirlpool, it's pretty remarkable because they have so much coherence and consistency, right? And you can, you can, you know, sort of, sort of send a log its way and it's, it'll swirl down and get seemingly swallowed by this whirlpool, right? And you're like, that's so weird because ultimately it's the river. Um, so because this process of individuation, um, iteration, um, individual manifestation, incarnation, right? Incarnation uh, relates to the word carne, which is meat, right? So it basically means spirit taking form in the, in the form of a body, right? Like a body-mind. So if you think about it, it wasn't that long ago that human beings were so convinced that we were the center of the universe that we assumed the earth was at the exact center of the universe, right? We thought that everything we saw out there was really there for our sake, right? All these assumptions, because this forgetting process where we, we postulate connection to some sort of monotheistic God, and we'll have to later on get on to how that's different, because I think for some people, they'll, they'll immediately think like personal Christian God, right? When we say cosmic intelligence, we're not actually saying that. And I think some of what you realize when you try to take some of that out, some of that baggage out, some aspects of reality make more sense once you once you do that. And we can maybe get into that. But it wasn't all that long ago that you'll hear about, like, for instance, like human kings, right? So like, you know, the king of France or something that really sits in his room and thinks that like God looks at him like just one step down from divinity, right? And this king, this human being, this dude, really believes that he is like central to the entire creation, the entire cosmic creation. He's one step down from the the very center of it all. He literally believes that because that forgetting process and that individuation process is so coherent and strong, right? Over time, like you said, we found life in so many places, even on our planet, we find in the most seemingly inhospitable regions life tends to exist, right? Using the Jeff Goldblum character from Jurassic Park, life finds a way, right? Like it, it just does. It seems to be hardwired into whatever reality is, and we can, we can keep parsing that out. Whatever it is, it seems to be plumb full of different iterations of consciousness, right? Different excitations of that one consciousness that have taken on a form of temporary individual identity, right? And so when you think about it, it's it's kind of ludicrous, even from a materialist model, right? You don't have to argue with materialists anymore that aliens exist somewhere. They, they just believe that all the evidence in the world suggests that with the immense size of the cosmos, knowing now that based on the constraints or what we perceive as the constraints of materiality around us, 
there should be many, 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 many uh, life-bearing planets out there. Even if it's the exception to the rule, the, the, the cosmos is so immense that they must exist. And if, for the materialists, if all life is, is a further development um, and orientation of material, basically, right? Biochemical material, then that kind of life must exist everywhere. What I'm saying is that it's not really that biomaterial uh, component nature. It's something more metaphysical than that. But nevertheless, we are seeing something that is true about the underlying structure, which is that this process of constantly individuating, of disassociating into new forms of consciousness seems to be just built in. And <clears throat> I think it's also helpful for a second to quickly point out that the reason why I use that term disassociation and, and Bernardo Castrop again uses that in his model is because what we're pointing to there, rather than materialism, which again is a, a wild leap that we have no evidence for and no way of testing apart from us being a conscious interaction with it, right? We already have evidence for disassociation where one human being can literally have different individuated members inside of them, right? different people effectively. And it's not just, well, I'm going to pretend to be extroverted in this one and introverted in this one and an athlete in this one and a scholar in this one. These ones really take on a full-formed identity, even where the body seems to have a different experience of reality based on that mentation process. We're back at that again, where you can literally have one personality inside of one being that can be allergic to peanut butter and another persona will not be allergic to peanut butter. I mean, testable. I'm not talking about just they say this, but you can actually see this in real time. One will have an allergic reaction when one persona is coming to the surface. That body will not have an allergic reaction if another persona has come to the surface. And these are like evidenced in actual physiological reactions. This is not something you can fake in other words, right? So this is partly why even with criminal courts, people try to figure out if, if the person's having multiple personalities within them, because that literally changes how we think about who's responsible, right? Um, for like a crime that was committed. So that, that's why, you know, he points to that because we already have evidence of how this happens and how it becomes completely convincing to those different personas. And what we're saying is ultimately that's true all the way back to the cosmic intelligence. Um, but that's what I would say is that in the same way that we now realize it's silly to think that we're the center of the universe and that that king of France is like, you know, one step down from the cosmic intelligence, that's a very small-minded um, way of seeing reality based on hubris and a lack of imagination, right? But it's partly because that whirlpool is so coherent and co so, co so consistent that we get fooled by it. But what we should realize is that what is, is pointing towards is actually likely a cosmos teeming with life. And to bring in, um, you know, Donald Hoffman's point again, evolution. So if someone would say, well, if that's true, why are we not seeing more aliens all the time, right? And what Donald Hoffman would say is because, because we are, again, just seeing the dials on the dashboard. And if the dials on the dashboard, we don't need to see gray aliens to survive then that was that was filtered out of the dials that we were presented with right over time our ancestors and so we have to remember that we you know take all these different pieces and put them together 
and try to keep them in your conscious awareness because again, we are not seeing all that is around us right now at all. We are seeing not even just a filtered version. We're seeing a different representation, an interface, the same way that a a desktop interface references, you know, zeros and ones and binary code and things. Nothing like the actual thing, but it's 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 it it's exists in a way that makes it navigable for us, right? So that's what we're saying here too. That that actually life is teeming right throughout the cosmos and even around us right now. I'm not just talking about an Alpha Centauri. I'm saying that right now there are numerous intelligences around us, you know, a hairbreadth away, but we have just filtered out awareness of them because it has not been essential to our survival and the propagation of the species. So keep all these things in mind, but that's, that's where the consciousness piece comes in and why it just seems to be built in that this frequent disassociation process that feeds back into the whole is central to the entire thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and let's explore that some more as well. So what is the, uh, maybe for lack of a better term, what is the cosmic aim? We did talk about there was a need for novel experience uh, that instead of just uh, being a, in, in the state of rest and not having anything new arise within that, that awareness, we, we, we don't have that. We have distinct different experiences arising because that creates novelty, that creates meaning. Meaning is born from the relationship between these experiences. So you, you can't have meaning without relationality. And so we, we have this, uh, in a way, this sort of fractal uh, explosion of meaning and relationality arising out of the cosmic mind. Um, you know, is that the chief aim of conscious activity? Is there a larger goal? Can we speak intelligently, intelligibly about any of those concepts? Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I would say that, you know, people will phrase it something like, you are an extension of the cosmos exploring itself. And that's what they basically mean, right? And so just to steer back on what you were saying there, again, the key is you have to have the perception of a disassociated individual identity to have novel experience, right? So that's that's really key here because that, that's what allows the whole thing to keep going. And that's what actually fuels the whole thing to keep going through multiple iterations is because you keep doing that. And what's what's interesting here is that we have to remember that using your analogy of the fractals, we are fractal representations of that original cosmic intelligence, really. And so the same way that, you know, every drop has the ocean in it, right? Not only is it fundamentally the ocean, right? A drop is the ocean, but it has the entire ocean in every drop. In the same way, you know, we have, at least in potentia, everything about the cosmic intelligence inside of us. This is, again, like we talked about a couple episodes ago, uh, you know, the Buddha in all of us kind of thing that already exists and basically is about just removing the, the distortions that prevent us from seeing it. So, so this is key is that you, 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 um, you create individual um, iterations of personas that because of that change in orientation, that because that identity, even though it's partial, it's deliberately partial because you have to have that partialness, that forgetting process. 
in order to have a, a new way of lensing the world, right? Of like, um, you think about, you know, how you can, you know, take uh, some sort of glass and change the way the light's coming in kind of thing, right? So you think about yourself like that, that you are going to um, refract light differently because of your uniqueness, right? And so that allows for the plethora of many, many colors to then be ultimately perceived by the totality. So that process keeps happening over and over again. And not only that, but but getting back to what I was saying about we ultimately are that cosmic intelligence. So in the same way, we eventually get to the point where we too want to see what it's like to seed creation, right? So for us right now, that may be virtual realities, right? That we are, are now creating. But eventually you evolve to the point where you can do that in what is quote unquote perceived as reality right now. So even though it's really a dreamscape, right? Another um, a a field of coherent mentation, you eventually evolve to the point where even that becomes malleable to you. And then you can seed new civilizations, new life forms in the same way that happened with the original cosmic intelligence. And that's where you get this notion of dimensions that, that um, well, there's numerous ways we can talk about dimensions. But as I've said before, when I talk about dimensions, I don't mean physical universes sitting next to each other, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean different coherent fields of mentation. But that's why it's really interesting around the phenomenon question, because when people say, oh, so is, is Darren's model uh, that we can only be the creation, quote unquote, of the one initial cosmic intelligence. And I'm saying, well, it could be an iteration like 17 layers down, right? Mm -hmm. So you've had beings, because we have to remember, even when we look at, again at the clues of what looks like the physical universe, we are a relatively very young species, right? On an, on an outer arm of a galaxy that's not that old, right? And this outer arm is one of the, the newer aspects of the galaxy, right? Like the center of the galaxy is much older. So all of that gives you clues about likely there are life forms that have been around for much, much longer than us, right? And so they have gotten to the point where they can do that level of manipulation of quote unquote reality, right? What, mm -hmm. what we perceive as material reality right now, which is again, just a partial understanding, they eventually can basically iterate that like a virtual reality. Because this is, again, where people sometimes will say, oh, so is it possible that the, the phenomenon exists because we're actually just in a simulation, right? Mm -hmm. But the notion there is that these beings are in the actual physical universe and what we are is kind of just like a computer program iteration, right? right. And I'm saying, no, the entire thing is a dreamscape dreamscape all the way up and all the way down. All there is is consciousness. So in that sense, everything's virtual, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean it's any less real because that's the fundamental nature of reality. There is no core base physical reality where some beings are manipulating us. It's dreamscapes all the way up and all the way down. Mm -hmm. And and I want you to talk a little bit more about this. Is there a, a through line of, of what it means to be you you know, so there's, uh, you did talk just a second there about, you know, scaling up and the dimensionality of, I guess, you know, who you are, who you perceive yourself to be. And then as you scale up, having the ability to essentially, you know, create, uh, you know, galaxies or whatnot in the way that, that we perceive to be within one now. But, you know, is there a, why... 
I guess, posit that there is a through line of personality there. Um, and where, where does that uh, sort of um, conclusion, insight come from? Does it come from uh, the underlying model itself? Does it come from, uh, you know, hints that we get from things like uh, past life experience accounts or, you know, near-death experience? Like, where, where, where do you draw from to kind of get to that place? Well, I think if you think about it theoretically for a second, you would recognize that if it's true that there's this original conscious intelligence, cosmic intelligence, um, through which everything we perceive as the material reality is actually just excitation of its mentation, basically, what it's thinking about, right? Um, then what would be the most useful and meaningful and could most contribute back something really significant is if you could have not just one iteration as one identity, but you you initiate or instantiate uh, an individual whirlpool, and then you let that whirlpool experience multiple rivers, right? And which ultimately are all part of the same body of water, right? Across the entire planet to use the, to stretch the metaphor some more. But the notion is that, you know, rather than just having one lifetime, what we perceive as one lifetime, and then you dissolve back, like the whirlpool dissolves back into the river and it never was effectively, what we can actually have is, and this is where I think my model and my understanding would differ from someone like Tom Campbell. So um, in my sense, we actually can have all of the above. I think we do actually have all of the above. I think that Every time, every space has ever existed is like a cosmic address. In the same way that you can pull up a website that was, you know, designed 12 years ago, the same way you can do that for Nathan, who was 12 years old and skinned his knee one time because he fell off his bike. That iteration of Nathan and that experience, which again is just an excitation of consciousness, right? That is always available. When we use these terms in time, like always, that kind of in some ways defeats the purpose, but just think of these things as ultimately there is no linear time, right? That's an illusion. Um, so, but you create this iteration of individual identity and then you run it through multiple iterations, right? You take that whirlpool and you say, let's see what it's like for Nathan to become like a 16th century monk, you know, living in a monastery in, in Northern Europe, right? And then, you know, another time is going to be something else. Um, and what's interesting, even in reincarnation studies, not to get too uh, off track here, but what's really interesting is that people often, counter to, I think, popular belief, you don't necessarily come as a, as a monk one time living in a monastery, then you become a camel or something in Egypt. Generally, you actually tend to reincarnate, and this is based on studies, in the similar part of the world, and sometimes associated with some of the same kind of families and things like that. So it's almost like all of these are individual experiments that are being run where different iterations and different variables are changed in that experiment. But the experiment runs over what we perceive as multiple lifetimes because that becomes a much more interesting data set and experiential um, experiment to then feed back in, into the totality. And we have to remember these things, like something like time is again, part of the illusion that happens in a dreamscape. So 
Nathan as he is now and Nathan as he was as somebody else in a previous lifetime, quote unquote, um, are, are always equally available, always equally alive, quote unquote, right? Because again, once you really wrap your head around, this is all dreamscape, this is all just excitations of consciousness, nothing ever has to go away. Nothing ever does go away. It just becomes different iterations. Um, you know, the same way that you can, again, use, use really crude metaphors. We're beginning to see evidence of this in our reality. You could save, uh, you know, a score you got on Pac-Man, right? Um, or you could save a certain virtual reality screen you really liked and go back to it any time, right? And so if someone from 100 years ago saw us doing that, they're like, wow, that's magical. How are you doing that? And it's like, we think, well, that's, that's not difficult at all. So just think about that in terms of this, that ultimately time is illusory. There's no such thing. Space too, right? These are, again, just fields of mentation, excitations of consciousness. But the reason why there are not only multiple intelligences, multiple beings around the cosmos, because that's just more interesting for the totality, but so too are there multiple lifetimes which by the way, sometimes means one lifetime you might be a gray alien, another time you might be a human being, right? <laughs> um, uh, again, we get these we get these individual you know, streams where for a while you're gonna be a human being in one part of the world and part of one aspect of an experiment. But some people come in with a very different beginning experiment. They, were, they, were, they come in for different reasons. So it's, it gets complex, but the bottom line is that not only are there many, many intelligences, but there are also many, many iterations of those intelligences because that ultimately is more meaningful and contributes more significant information, um, more exciting aliveness to the totality, which is ultimately what this seems to be about. Yeah, I I mean, I personally really like this model. I think uh, I, I respond to it um, and, and I, ha I have to say, I'm not a person that's always thought of things in this way um and i definitely used to be a strong materialist and um essentially an atheist um when when i would be asked about what happens after i die i would just say well you know what happened before i was born you know nothing <laughs> and there's there's no experience that that is like uh and so i don't need to worry about that um i was sort of that rooted in in the material perspective um, but, you know, I got to say that, that, you know, what this model does for me is it really does redeem a lot of uh, my own lived experience. It also um, resonates with, with kind of my intuition as well about the way that, that reality happens to be. Um, I also find it to be more meaningful, just that at a root level, it's much more meaningful to look at the world and in reality in this way uh, because it, it it does in many ways mirror the uh, the kind of act of creation you know it, it is the act of creation it, and when, when you think about art and music and beauty you know th these are things that that come that, that pour out of out of the the process of living right and uh, why would the universe not want if it, if it had a, a, a level of awareness, which is what we are saying, it is aware at, at its root fundamental level, it is aware. Why would it not want to, as, it in, as it's in the process of its breathing out and breathing in, uh, to create and to, and to experience and to have as much creation and as much experience as, as possible? 
and to learn from that, right? So that's the other, I think, aspect of this that is, um, you know, partly what we can understand and partly, you know, things which we cannot, but that which it is seeking to do and, and know and be, you know, it's not that it's, uh, you know, sort of stuck in a, uh, in a thought loop about how, you know, it could devise a uh, you know, hundred of the best ways to, you know, to, you know, to do the same thing over and over again. It's, uh, it's desiring new experience and, and building upon experience that it has had before. And that is also intuitive to how we live our lives. Like you, you don't live your life and, and just keep, I mean, many of us do, I guess, but keep doing the same thing over and over again. But if you do something and it's going to causes you harm or causes someone else harm, or uh, if it, if it, uh, you know, engenders a, a visceral negative response in, in who you are as a person, you try not to do that again. So you try to avoid that, that happening again. And, and, and this is much in the same way, right? It's, it's that there is this, uh, experimental nature of of life that that as it as it expands out it is learning along the way and and trying not to repeat the same mistakes now that's not to say that it doesn't and, and i mean lord knows we all uh, fall into sort of traps where we continue to make the same mistakes over and over again uh, but we also are given opportunities i think to 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 not do that right so uh, th- that's where this concept of grace and redemption kind of enters into the equation as well. That that we're not defined solely by these uh, these habits that, that we kind of accrue and that that, that, that that glom onto us. That we have this opportunity to break free of that crust and and just like you, just like a, a caterpillar would break free of that chrysalis, you know, to become something else uh, and to take flight. So. I know I, I'm very kind of waxing poetic here, but I just wanted to take a moment to say that this model for me uh, has a lot of personal meaning, not, which is not even just to say how much I think it best fits what we in, in our own community of interest here fits the different areas of phenomena that we are interested in, that, that for us, I think, uh, are that are the light coming through the cracks of the door saying that there is a world outside that door that is, uh, you know, more real than the room that we find ourselves in. Yeah, and I think um, some of what you reflected on there made me think about the piece I mentioned earlier about how this notion of a cosmic intelligence may differ from like a personal God you might get in a religious perspective. And the difference is, you know, so some people, you know, when I studied the philosophy of religion, one of the central questions was the, or central issues was the quote unquote problem of evil, right? How I'm sure you want to come across that in seminary too. So, so how is it that a good God would allow bad things to happen? And sometimes they add to good people, right? But the notion with this model is that again, we are fractal representations of God, of that central intelligence. And so there is no daddy figure saying, I'm going to spank you if you do the wrong thing by giving you hell or something, you know, fire and brimstone. Rather, what we have is multiple iterations to try things. Like you say, you bang your knee and it hurts. You go, I'm not going to do that next time. You say something when you get angry and you realize it hurts someone you care about. So you go, next time I'm going to rethink how I do that. And not only that, but when you think about human history, 
Um, I think because of the media and everything and sensational, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing, we forget how much, in some ways, how much more peaceful the world is than it used to be, right? So eventually along the way, we realized, listen, if I constantly try and attack that neighboring tribe because I want their crops or whatever, then they might do the same thing to me. Um, and in some ways, they're kind of like me in that sense, that we both have families we care about, we don't want to lose, possessions we don't want to lose. So eventually we realize it's better if we just say, let's make a pact where we equally get some of our own land and we we support each other, or we at least we don't attack each other anymore, right? So over time, we begin to recognize that that's in everybody's best interest. And as I mentioned before, when I brought an integral theory, eventually what happens is our circle of and sphere of concern gets larger and larger. So at first, you know, when you think about like a, a five-year-old, right? Like I want it, you know, ah, everything's about them, right? Um, to some degree, cultures began that way too. So you can see some of the same progression that's, that's predictable both in individuals and in cultures. So the same way that a five-year-old is different than a 15-year-old and it's different than a 30-year-old, you know, you have um, this, this, this notion that over time, we went from caring just about our family unit to then caring about a tribe, to then caring about maybe our nation state, to then sometimes maybe caring about the people who look like us or identify about things like we do, to eventually realizing it's broader than that. It's got to be all humanity, right? We got we to gotta be about human rights, which is the recognition that we're all in this together, that for me to, you know, expect, you know, it's, the, it's the, the golden rule that I would expect you to do to me what I would do to you kind of thing. And then we realize, wait a second, turns out that animals are conscious agents too, right? That have feelings and emotions. So we should, you know, we, we've, we've seen an increased move towards protection of animal rights, right? Um, and growth of vegetarianism and veganism and, and all these things. Um, and then what I'm saying is when you scale that out even to some of the most benevolent, most evolved other non-human intelligences, you eventually get to a point where you have, have kind of this cos, cosmocentric understanding of reality where every sentient being is valuable and deserves freedom and respect, right? Uh, so, so we see this, basically this experiment runs because the goal is that eventually through our own experience, through our own trial and error, we determine in the end that it's not good to do bad things because ultimately that either hurts us or other people that are ultimately also us, right? So this is where the non-duality piece comes in. When you start recognizing, not just conceptually, I mean, in your bones, when you really feel like everybody's ultimately iterations of the same thing, we're ultimately one consciousness just taking different temporary forms, then you really want the best for the, the whole because you recognize you yourself are ultimately that. Well, you, you mentioned uh, non-duality, and I wanted to talk about that some more as well, because um, we do use that phrase quite a bit, and uh, I think it'd be worth expounding on it a little bit more. Um, and we had a conversation not too long ago where you uh, kind of helped me understand it a little bit better by saying it a little bit differently, and that he said that non-duality is just not two. And... Uh, you know, it's it's also not saying it's oneness either, right? So I wonder if you could kind of talk to that a little bit more because I, I found that to be particularly useful. Um, and 
it's not hard for me to get the concept of we're all part of this conscious, you know, it, this larger consciousness, and the, and thus therefore we are all connected. We are all essentially a part of the same thing. There, there really is no at, at a root level distinction. Um, I, I, I think I understand that, and I, I really feel into that. Um, but I wonder if you could talk uh, specifically about the non-duality piece and and how that fit fits in. Well, the first thing I would say is that we have to recognize that ultimately reality is not the reality that we can conceive of. That whenever you have a conception, you've created a kind of a subject-object duality, right? You've, you've said, I am a being who can perceive a reality and define it as such, right? Um, and so that we're back to that question of when we are ultimately excitations of the thing we're trying to describe, you run into a conundrum. So we are convinced based on our our contemporary society and the way that our, our languages, modern languages have been structured, that this subject-object duality is built into reality, and it's actually ultimately not. So that's part of it. Um, we also, yeah, like in that conversation we had, um, the reason why we use this term non-duality rather than just oneness is because it's not perfectly accurate to say, so everything is just one either. Um, it, but it's also not two, right? So we've talked before about in Eastern traditions, they are more comfortable making definitions by negation, right? That again, it's this notion of who are we as you know, finite, individuated, temporary um, loci of ultimate intelligence to say exactly what it is. We, we can't know, right? That anything we can conceive of can't possibly be that thing that is beyond our conceptions, right? You run into uh, a barrier there. So what we reduce it to is what we are comfortable saying. And we're comfortable saying none of these things that we define as subject-object are really subject-object. They are not two, non-duality, right? Not, not two-ness is what that basically means. But we have to be careful about saying oneness because that two is a conception, which is ultimately... Again, as the expression goes, the Tao that you can name is not the true Tao, right? So that's sort of that that humble, one step removed, saying this is as close as we can get to saying what reality is without feeling like we're overstepping. Got it. Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent. Thank you. Um, well, uh, maybe in the last few minutes here, as we kind of move toward the, the back end of the episode... Um, Maybe we can speak to some evidence in the phenomena uh, that, that that we are often very familiar with in the in the literature, and and why that you know sort of reinforces this perspective. So I don't know where you necessarily want to start with that. We've got a lot of uh, areas of phenomenological experience uh, from uh, you know the afterlife and uh, past life experience from. Uh, the UFO experience, of course, from remote viewing and and non-locality, uh, psi other psi elements. Uh, I don't know. T take your pick. What's what feels like the best place to start there? Well, that's that's great, and I think it would be helpful for us to go back and forth here. You you toss out an item, and I'll I'll respond to it. So, and then you can give some feedback. So, like you say, you can pick any one of those. How do they fit into this model? So. Let's start with the the afterlife thing, right? So these famous cases like Whitley Strieber, you know, uh, ran into where 
deceased relatives were showing up on one floor of his cabin while gray aliens were showing up upstairs, right? How, how does that happen and how does that fit within this model? Well, in this model, again, death is not ultimate or final or a real barrier as we perceive it because uh, there is no material existence which exists outside of consciousness, which uh, is the sum total of what we are. So when material breaks down into soil again, there's nothing there. No, it's the other way around. The consciousness is primary, is is first, and anything that looks like materiality is actually just temporary and partial, right? And so these others seem to have a greater awareness of that aspect of reality, and they can navigate between these different fields of mentation. So you might want to think about it like a phase shift. So when we quote unquote die, all we're doing is shifting from one field of mentation to another, right? We're having kind of a phase shift. And these others, some of them can with ease navigate between these different fields of mentation, right? Um, this is why I, I use that term intermentational because they can cross back and forth between all of these ones. And that's ultimately they really are, is just different dreamscapes. So you're in a different dream when you're quote unquote dead. But if you have, again, you've developed your conscious awareness you've become closer, a little bit anyway, to the kind of understanding that the original cosmic intelligence has, you recognize how you can join dreams, how you can interpenetrate dreams, right? So these others can bring your deceased your deceased relatives, said in quotes, into a room the same time that they show up. Because again, these are all malleable, interpenetratable uh, fields of mentation that they can navigate. So that's where that one comes in. And uh, in terms of, I think one of the great uh, obvious data points in the UFO phenomenon to this that speaks to this is how people will speak about being in nature somewhere and suddenly it feels like just time stops, right? Like suddenly there's no bird sounds, there's no insect sounds, there's no sign of wind blowing. There are some times where people literally will turn around and see their friends frozen in suspended animation, right? And these others will step into the scene, take them aboard a craft. They have some sort of interaction. They come back. Reality restarts, basically like it's a video game, right? You press play again, it keeps going. The people that were frozen, so to speak, have no notion that there was any gap in time whatsoever. And of course, for those who are looking for, you know, typical materialistic evidence, this is going to be very hard to produce and this kind of thing, because this uh, transcends our very notions of reality and the way that materiality and space and time work, right? So as I've said many times, one of the biggest clues that that speaks in this direction is, is Valet's comment about the UFO phenomenon teaching us fundamentally that we do not understand space-time, that it's not just that they're doing some cool stuff that we haven't figured out technologically yet, but literally that their understanding and their ability to manipulate what we perceive as the construct of space-time tells us that it can't be what we think it actually is. And I'm saying it's because space and time, again, are just temporary partial constructs within these dreamscapes. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to touch on something before I, I pick my own topic, but that uh, is that this notion that we've touched on before. And that's, I, I think this is something that people can easily get confused on. And that's that just because these other entities can you know, interpenetrate uh, with our experience of reality does not also mean that they are necessarily more morally advanced than we are, that they 
they, they may behave in ways that we would look at and say, oh, that 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 that's good behavior, a behavior of a higher conscious being. Uh, so I think that, that that's an easy misconception. I, just, I know that's a kind of a sidebar. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but I, I wanted to touch on that because you, you made me think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think a great uh, analogy would be, you know, uh, Nazi science was some of the most advanced science in the world at the time, right? Mm-hmm. They they developed groundbreaking technology that to some degree fueled the advance of our rocket program and our space program, right? We we Operation Paperclip talks talks about this. We brought in thousands of ex-Nazis to basically, you know, fuel the growth of our space program. So that's a perfect example that they were technologically some of the furthest along out of any human civilization. And yet morally, we would say it was abhorrent what they did. And the notions they had about life and human beings and the dignity of human life while also being technologically advanced, we should take that lesson when we apply it to uh, the others as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to take, I want to take the uh, topic of remote viewing. Uh, I like that notion quite a bit. Um, and I think most people have experienced something akin to remote viewing in their life. Uh, they've had a, a premonition or they've had a, you know, just uh, an awareness of, uh, of a family member that is going through something and are maybe about to call them and the call comes through. So there are ways in which we acquire knowledge that uh, happen outside of the conventional commonly accepted means of acquiring information. And in this model, the way I think about that, uh, you know, please correct me if, uh, if I've got, got this wrong, is just the same way that I think about how I retrieve information in my own memory. You know, if I, it isn't, I don't have to, uh, you know, kind of wait for the bus to arrive. If I want to, you know, take a trip back to Nathan from a few years ago when I went, you know, on a, va- on a vacation, I can just access that information. I can, I can relive that that experience. I can, you know, if I'm concentrating hard enough, I can essentially. It's almost like I'm there, you know, when it when it was happening. And so, if if all of reality is is consciousness, is one grand mind, then remote viewing is in a way. You know, kind of doing the same type of thing. It's uh, it's 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 tapping into that that uh, just the way things function, and that that gives us that access to information, no matter where it may be in in space, quote unquote, or time. Yeah, absolutely. That that's the fundamental takeaway. There is that space and time can't be absolute and linear in the way we think about them, because remote viewing is a thing, right? Um, that it seems like all the evidence seems to suggest that there are no limitations, that that information at any space, at any time, is available all the time, quote unquote. Here's again where language kind of traps us, right? But the, the notion is, and you know, the, this is partly why the CIA, as well as the Soviets, really spent money, you know, the the the, the program that the CIA funded around remote viewing ran for 20 years. Because the the concern was, if you can build a massive vault with you know twenty foot iron walls deep underground, but remote viewing is a real thing, then is any kind of secret ultimately able to be kept a secret? And the answer ultimately is no. That we've seen many many examples of prime uh, evidence where it becomes very clear that anything in space and time is available. We think about Joe McMonagall 
you know, he was given coordinates one time and suddenly finds himself accessing this kind of pyramidal structures with this kind of, you know, desert-like landscape. And so he thinks maybe he's seeing ancient Egypt. Turns out later on, he finds out that he's actually remote viewing Mars from like a million years ago. This literally happens, right? This is not metaphorical. This is not, he's using imagination. This is literally the way that reality works. I said the, the, the notion before of a cosmic address, right? That he can tune in and, and log on to that cosmic address of Mars a million years ago, the same way that you, like you said, can tune into how Nathan felt about something that happened three years ago, right? That that same way you access a memory is actually true of any space or time in reality. That's that's true. And yes, this absolutely speaks to um, corroborating the validity of this model because, again, none of these things are actually real outside of excitations of consciousness. And so because they're mentation processes that are not based on materiality or time, those are just sort of local rule sets within the dream, then if you're coming from outside the dream, you can manipulate all of that and access them in any way you want to. And that's exactly what we see with some of these others. Again, they can come in and manipulate to what look like us as fixed laws of the cosmos. They're not. They're just laws of our local field of mentation. So they're more like rules in a video game. And if you're someone who's actually got access to the program code, you can just change the laws, right? So that's that's basically what's happening. Mm. Okay, well, uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the others. We've a little bit more. We've certainly talked about them a decent amount, but uh, like, why interact with us at all, right? So, and, and I, the way I think about this is, uh, you know, I'm a, I've got a backyard, and I've got, let's say, I've got an anthill back there. Uh, if I want to interact with it, you know, I can move some dirt around, and and they don't understand why that's happening, and I've really just reordered their entire world <laughs> just with a, a stroke of a hand. Uh, I don't have to either, though. I could just totally leave it alone uh, and and let it kind of go on its way. Um, so so why why are we getting interaction at all from these others? Um, or and I guess another way to think about it too is 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 some level of interaction uh, always occurring regardless of you know agenda or intent. It's just that we in our limited frame of perception, don't experience that, uh, but then there are moments, I guess, that, that that are happening where where that experience breaks through, uh, kind of the 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 fog, if you will. Uh, so why? Well, what's going on there? Right. So, so your last point, I would say yes, that to some degree, this interaction is always going on. Um, I think that in some of the revelatory experiences I've had, I've had, it became very clear to me that. Sometimes emotions that come over me or are or actions I take interpenetrate other realities. And so there are implications to our actions that impact other realities and other entities, right? The same way that a gut bacteria, right, is going to change what you choose for lunch maybe, right? We know that that happens, that kind of thing, right? And I'm saying imagine that but scaled out over many, many iterations of dimensions where there's this... Uh, symbiotic relationship across dimensions, not just across like biomes and an ecosystem, right? So think about it that way. I would also say in terms of different kinds of interaction, again, think about the lessons we've learned in human history where uh, when some of the colonial powers, right, um, 
again, thinking of the King of France, right? The colonial powers felt like they had a right to go into impoverished countries or third world countries and basically take their, you know, their resources and tell them how things should be, you know, convince them that their local religion or spirituality was completely corrupt and ridiculous and you should take our notions because they're the most, um, you know, transcendent and evolved. So colonial powers justified all sorts of domination and oppression and destruction, basically, of cultures they viewed as lesser than them, right? There are some of these others that basically have that mentality about us because, again, we're all, as conscious agents, moving towards non-dual realization at various points along that spectrum. So many of us now that, you know, had and are, you know, relatives in the not too distant past who were part of these colonial powers that were basically dominating the world, um, now we recognize that wasn't so good, actually. You know, what we did to the indigenous peoples of various places that were there long before us when we came in as Europeans wasn't so good for them. And we now, hopefully, many of us see many of the ways that our mindset and our worldview has all sorts of weaknesses and ways that we're destroying the planet because we kind of look at the, everything as a commodity, right? So um, so some of them are still in that kind of mentality, right? Others are further along the spectrum of consciousness development. They've moved more towards that non-dual realization where they literally believe in their bones, if they have them, maybe they're sometimes, you know, exoskeletal, some of them, right? So it's a bit different. Yep. But um, for them, you know, they recognize that to harm us is to harm themselves because, again, ultimately they recognize, not just conceptually, but they know, right? They have this deep non-dual realization that we are ultimately the same thing. And so they look at us more like siblings earlier, you know, in the development phase and they want to try to help us. But again, because they recognize that we were all fractal representations of God, of the central intelligence, they want to help us to learn the lessons on our own so that we make the right decisions that ultimately end up benefiting the species beneath us, so to speak, right? The biosphere that we're a part of. But we do it because we recognize that oneness, that connection as well. So rather than you know doing the homework for us, they try to encourage us. They try to inspire us in lots of little ways. I think some of these most benevolent ones are able to communicate if you tune into that. And sometimes I think people don't realize that's what they're actually communicating with. But they do this because they, again, also want to see us move into a further iteration, uh, a further level of development where we do things for the right reasons because we too get to the point where we realize everything's connected. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's something like too where we might want to uh, approach a cancer in the body and, and just cut it out, let's get the cancer out instead of actually figuring out a way, if we could, just let the body heal itself to to not take that you know, drastic approach of, of you know, harming the organism, but could we somehow convince the organism to uh, recognize this you know, behavioral uh, uh, object which manifests as a cancer and, and, and get rid of it uh, on its own? That would be the better way as opposed to just taking that scalpel to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this will be controversial to some people, um, but, you know, when you think about, you know, moves towards naturopathic kind of therapies and that kind of thing, what that sort of moves towards is this notion, or, or at least it puts us in the right trajectory to understand, again, 
that the material body, the biochemical makeup of the material body, is not ultimately a material construct, right? You can do things that will impact it, right, on a, on the temporary physical level, but that is actually that top layer manifestation in what looks like physicality is actually a byproduct of many fields of mentation. So that's why sometimes healing really does happen, right? Uh, it's not just because these others uh, have advanced technology, that's part of it, but it's also because they, again, have got to the point where the same way they can make that wall disappear, right? As a thought form, right? Not as a material construct, but as a thought form, in the same way, they can make a cancer go away because it also is also ultimately some sort of temporary object or manifestation of consciousness, right? So this goes all the way up and go all the way down. When you really think about the implications for this, it's really immense. And uh, again, Bernardo Castro's talked about this as well. Like the way we would approach medicine would be very, very different, very, very different, essentially fundamentally changed when we recognize that material existence is ultimately a byproduct of these deeper processes in mentation. And we would approach it very differently because of that. Now, maybe we're in a period of time where we're kind of in this awkward in-between time where this is the best we can do based on how much, how what degree of manipulation we have as a capacity over reality. But the long-term goal is to get to a point where we can actually become aware of the things in us that are creating the negative energy that is ultimately going to form you know, either a cancer or a tumor or something, right? Because that energy consolidates, right? It concretizes into something that looks physical, right? And I'm saying, we already know that, right? People who have negative thoughts all the time, eventually it breaks down their body, right? It's just not good for you. We know that already. There's already been moves towards that in, in medicine. I'm saying this happens in much greater degrees than we are aware yet, and that are certainly that our society is willing to recognize the entire pharmaceutical in, uh, industry, of course, is all about producing chemicals, mixing chemicals together to put them into bodies that are going to fix things on a chemical level. Again, that's a very um, reductionistic and partial way of looking at the actual process of what creates these um, physical manifestations. And ultimately, we want to get to the point where we have more awareness of all of the the factors that play a role in that so that we have more of a holistic way of actually working with the body. Right. I was about to say, there's this uh, need for harmony between uh, those sides, the, the technological side and the, and the deeper understanding of, of how we are connected to reality. Um, you know, if we can bring those two into harmony, then that, that's a much better state than the opposite. And, and quite frankly, if we're always interacting with other uh, intelligences in some form or fashion, or if, if, if actions that we take in our world, our world, quote unquote, uh, can, can ripple into theirs, uh, we certainly can understand why if we're starting to play with technology that far exceeds our, our spiritual grasp, if you will, that they may take strong notice of that and, uh, and try to, you know, take some countermeasures to, to get us back on a different track. Yeah, it's one thing when the um, the the brothers and sisters at one level are using sticks and stones, but when they start, you know, trying to split the atom, um, even though again that's only a partial aspect of the total reality, which is the field of mentation, 
it's a pretty big impact on the dreamscape. So um, then we're getting into, we may be even actually interpenetrating dreamscapes with that kind of level of destruction. And that's kind of what they've they've spoken to us. That's what they've said to experiencers is that you don't understand the nature of reality. You don't understand how there's actually interpenetrating realities. And that some of these things you're doing at this level actually have an impact across these um, these borders or these barriers between these different uh, biomes, even if they're ultimately mentation biomes. So absolutely. And the other thing I would actually quickly add too is that we talked about disease and health and medicine and all that kind of thing. We also have to remember that a big part of the experience or testimony around this phenomenon is this sense of like soul contracts, right? People coming in, sometimes having agreed to have certain things happening to them physiologically, because again, in the terms of, of the raw material, that creates the catalyst, the resistance, which allows us to grow our souls, which you can think of as the sort of enduring energetic imprint behind each of our iterations. And when you think about the lessons learned there, just like the lessons of a civilization learning about not going to war with each other, um, that is actually more important than any individual iteration. So even when someone gets sick, I'm not saying that's fun, of course it's not. And you know, when someone dies, even less fun. But we have to remember, I think, to really be able to move about the world in a way that doesn't make us feel completely paralyzed in fear. We have to recognize that there are bigger moves in play in consciousness ultimately. And that even the things that happen in this life uh, sometimes were set up previous to this because ultimately they play a role in our evolution as these energetic signatures that carry across lifetimes. And, and that's ultimately more important than anything that happens in any individual lifetime. So this just, again, brings us back to that point I often make and we've discussed before where the key, I think, to, to living in a way that feels holistic and healthy and vibrant uh, is to be able to toggle between the relative and the absolute. Yes, we do want to care about what happens to each other in this iteration. We should do the best we can in this iteration. But we should also recognize and take comfort in the fact that in an absolute sense, nothing that exists can ultimately, ultimately be destroyed. So we are eternal beings having a temporary finite experience. That's ultimately what that is. We will wake up from this dream in another dream. Knowing that allows us to move forward in a way that's compassionate and empowered, I think, ultimately. Mm. Excellent. Well, this episode for me accomplished what I wanted it to. And we've been, like you said, we've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, I really wanted to see if we could uh, start at the ground level and work our way up. And I know there are many other areas that we haven't touched on in detail. So we've got more things to talk about that, that work within this model uh, in the future. And I look forward to the, those conversations. Um, so th thanks for going along with me on this experiment. Uh, I think it was really strong and, and a good way to start the, the new year, uh, a year that is already uh, bringing with it some interesting developments, uh, at least in the in the UAP space, which we had a, uh, a revelation about that today, the, the UAP report. Uh, that was, I guess, what we thought it might be, which wasn't all that much. Uh, but there is, it still points to there is a there there worth uh, taking a look at, and I, I know we'll have a chance to talk about that some in the episodes ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You have one more point. I was just going to say before we sign off with uh, with uh, you know Nathan's famous benediction, uh, let me just say that 
if you out there in the audience have questions that, uh, that arise for you when you hear about all this material, again, like Nathan said, please feel free to reach out, message us, send emails, whatever you want to do. Uh, send in your questions, send in your feelings about this kind of material, and we will use that um, to, at some point in the future, maybe do an episode all about um, audience questions and interact with that. So uh, please uh, engage with us. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, uh, we, we, we talk about those comments all the time. So everything that you guys uh, share with us, we, we go over and, and often lead to some really interesting conversations. So uh, looking forward to hear what folks have to say. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, on this episode, and uh, we'll catch you again in a couple weeks. Uh, and with that said, we will close, as we often do, with may the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.